You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. Well, good morning, everyone. Really good to see everybody here. It's a beautiful day. Please turn to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. Today's message is the last in our series on the book of Romans. If you've been keeping track, it's number 21. <laughs> uh, with a few de- uh, detours for Christmas, Easter, and Mother's Day, along with three guest speakers that we've had in that time, it's taken us about seven months to get here. I know it doesn't seem like it, right? It seems like only yesterday. No, it seems like only seven months ago we started this. In those seven months, <clears throat> we have found Romans to be a deeply theological book focused on the need man has for salvation and the provision God has made for man's salvation. Specifically, because of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, sinners can receive salvation by God's grace on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. And this was presented in contrast to the idea that salvation could be received through any form of works or the keeping of God's law. We're reminded of chapter 3, verse 23, that said, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one could ever receive salvation under the law because we all fall short. So God provided the alternative of salvation by grace, something that makes salvation available to everyone. Well, in the final chapter of Romans, Paul changes his focus to greeting several of the Roman Christians by name recognizing and praising them for various things. Mixed in with those greetings are two other sections that we will find valuable to us as we live out our lives of following Jesus. Now, as Paul names these people, he addresses some who are Gentiles, some who are Jews, and some we may not know one way or the other. And because of this, borrowing from Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, I am calling today's message, Friends, Romans, Countrymen. Just, I needed a title, right? We start in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, with a lengthy section of greetings, praise, and honor. Verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is at Sincrea, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many, and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. Greet Apanditus, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved, in the Lord. 
Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, in Stachys, my beloved. Greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Trophena and Trophosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Perses, the beloved who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man of the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brethren with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. A lot of names. All right. In these 16 verses, I count... 27 individuals named, along with two unnamed people, the households of two of the named individuals, and as many as are included in the church that is in the house of Prisca and Aquila, also the brethren mentioned in verse 14, and the saints mentioned in verse 15. Of these, very few are mentioned elsewhere in the scriptures, so we really know nothing about them except for what we find here and that they were Christians. But Paul does have some specific things to say about three of these people, the first of whom is Phoebe. She is described as a servant of the church, which is at Sincrea. I'll put a map up here uh, if you can see this from where you are. Uh, and there's no good place for me to stand. All right, so this down here is the Corinthian Peninsula. You can see the uh, Gulf of Corinth coming in from this side. The Aegean Sea is over here on this side. And then you have this narrow strip of land right here. That's called an isthmus. And it, uh, between, you got Corinth on one side over here. Sancria is on the other side over there. All right. Uh, Sancria on the isthmus served as a port city for Corinth on that side in the first century. Ships would unload their cargo on one side or the other of the isthmus, and the cargo would be hauled about eight miles overland to the other side of the isthmus, or it would be placed on ships for travel to its final destination. This was much safer than for having the ships to sail clear around the, uh, the uh, peninsula, the Corinthian Peninsula. This was, uh, they could come in here, transfer the, the cargo across, and then it go on its way wherever it was headed. Uh, in the late 1800s, a canal was cut through the isthmus, which allowed ships to sail right through it from one side to the other. But it's so narrow, only about 70 feet at the bottom, 70 feet wide. Most modern ships are too large to use that. But I'm giving you this so you get the idea of where Corinth is and Sancria. Here they are separated by a distance of about 8 miles. The point is that there was an established congregation in Sancria. Phoebe was a servant in that church. And now we presume that she is, the one, she is the one carrying Paul's letter to Rome. Here she shows up. Here's the scroll, scroll from Paul. And when we get to the end with these greetings, Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. He commends uh, her to them. It's a way of Paul telling them that Phoebe has Paul's approval. Paul makes it clear that he desires for them to accept Phoebe as a sister in Christ, helping her in whatever way she might require. And he tells them that Phoebe has helped Paul himself, along with many others. Now, um, 
in the course of uh, ministry here over the last eight and a half years, uh, we've often had people contact us claiming to be involved in ministry in some way or another, and usually they want something when they do that. I have to say that if I don't know these people, never heard of them, don't know where they came from, I tend to be rather skeptical because anybody can say anything. But if I have a recommendation for them from a Christian whom I know and respect and who knows this other person, then I'm happy to do whatever I can for them on the basis of that recommendation. Paul's commendation of Phoebe would have been a tremendous help to her in being accepted by the Christians in Rome. Two others that stand out on Paul's list here are well known from other New Testament passages. Here, they're called Prisca and Aquila, although your translation might even read here, Priscilla and Aquila, which is how Luke refers to them when he writes about them. Paul met this married Jewish couple in Corinth on his second missionary journey. Paul probably was responsible for their conversion to Christianity. And like Paul, they made and sold tents to support themselves, at least at times, these two, Prisca and Aquila, they matured to become leaders in Christianity, able to teach sound doctrine to others. And you can look up all that you want to about Prisca and Aquila, Priscilla and Aquila, same people, and find out how they worked in the early church there in the scriptures. Now, we don't know in what way they risked their lives for Paul, but because they did, both Paul and all the churches among the Gentiles were thankful. They were instrumental in allowing Paul to continue in service. And they did so at the risk of their own lives. And so you can understand why other churches would be thankful for that. Prisca and Aquila also hosted a church in their house in Rome. And Paul sends greetings to that church as well. And then in the longest part of this section, there are many others named. Rather than focus on the names, I'd rather focus on the descriptions. As Paul greets these people, he uses descriptions like these. My beloved, a hard worker, my kinsman, my fellow prisoners, outstanding among the apostles, fellow worker in Christ, the approved in Christ, workers in the Lord, a choice man in the Lord, the brethren and the saints. Now, when he uses the word kinsman, we might think, well, that's Paul's relative, but he's probably actually talking about uh, his countrymen, fellow Jews who have converted to Christianity. And the phrase, uh, outstanding among the apostles, probably is the word apostle in its general sense of one who is sent out, not the one having the authority like Paul had as an apostle. Is it getting bad, Leland? Okay. I told Leland we were going to try this today, and if it started deteriorating and getting bad, we'd switch over to the other. So we're going to do that now. Okay, recording on the green mic now. My apologies that we can't seem to get the uh, technology straightened out. We'll keep working on that. All right. He probably uses the word apostle here in its general sense. Of one who is sent out 
uh, not the authoritative sense of like Paul, an apostle, commissioned personally by Christ. This means possibly then a married couple who are outstanding among those who travel as missionaries. Uh, Paul also makes mention of a woman here who had expressed some type of motherly care and concern for Paul, which is a nuance that we don't see in the other descriptions. But here's the thing. We've got all these descriptions that Paul uses in these greetings. What is the significance of these descriptions? Well, in my opinion, they show that devotion to Christ and to his church were of the greatest importance to these people. Love, evangelism, sacrifice, fellowship, service, hospitality. These also show the importance of relationship within the church. Paul had worked alongside many of these people. He'd become quite close to some of them. Paul had a personal relationship with the people that he mentioned by name. I think we can safely say that those people had personal relationships with other Roman Christians whom Paul did not yet know. By naming these people that Paul and the other Roman Christians had in common, Paul lays the groundwork for a personal relationship with the other Roman Christians as well. And I'll just give you an example. I'm going to pick on Bill and Sherry for a second. You ready for this? You have no idea what I'm about to say. When I first met you guys, and I don't even remember what that was, but when I first met you guys, I did not know you at all, right? Okay? But I knew people that you knew. You knew those people, and I knew them too. We had those people in common, and we shared something there that I think allowed us to develop our relationships with each other more quickly, drawing on that common relationship that we had with that third person, right? Okay, that's just an example and and one that is meaningful to me. Okay, more to the point. And this is what I want you all to think about as you read this list of Christians and how Paul describes them. Where would you be? Where would you be in this list of Christians to whom Paul sends greetings? If you'd been there in first century Rome in the church, would Paul have named you and described you in one of these ways? I can't answer that because we're not there and you're not going to be there, but I hope so. Would you have been one of Paul's dear friends? Are you a hard worker in the church? Are you one who is willing to make sacrifices for the good of the body of Christ? Are you outstanding in your area of service in the church? And I think each of us should consider these things and strive to be of the most use to the kingdom of God that we can possibly be. See, when Paul gives all these names, those names don't mean anything to us. We're not going to know those people until we get to heaven. But what about now? Who are you in the church now? Let's go on to verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, excuse me, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. 
Now, after holding up numerous people among the Roman Christians as examples of trustworthy, reliable servants of Christ, Paul now warns the Christians in Rome about those who would not be trustworthy or reliable. Now, there isn't any indication that he's talking about people who are already associated with the Roman churches, but he offers a warning against some who may and almost definitely will appear in the future. In this letter... In in the entire book of Romans, Paul had emphasized sound doctrine and unity. But he knows that some will try to associate with the Roman Christians who will cause division and who will not teach sound doctrine. Paul describes these false teachers as being slaves to their own appetites, their own fleshly desires. He says their God is their stomach, is one translation, but that's just symbolic, I think, of all those things that a person might engage in to indulge every physical desire. He says that they will be smooth talkers, flatterers, who will deceive those who are not on their guard. Now, you think about that. What does it mean to be on your guard? Well, you've got to be awake first, okay? You've got to be watching. You've got to be engaged You can't just be letting things happen repeatedly in the New Testament. We are told to be on the alert, to keep watch, to be on our guard, and to stay awake. And that's not just metaphorical, but let's say it's metaphorical, okay? To stay awake, right? Okay. So many people do not pay careful attention to what is being said. They get in a conversation and they hear words like God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and salvation and other words like that. And so they assume that what is being taught is truth when frequently it is not. As a matter of fact, some of those conversations that you can have with people who use those words, you find out after the fact maybe, if you find out at all, that they mean something completely different when they use those words than you do, than the scriptures do when they use those words. We must be educated in God's word so that we can compare what is being taught, what we're hearing, with the truth in the scripture. Then, if we find that what is being taught is not consistent with God's word, we know to turn away from those false teachers and to have nothing to do with them. I got to say at this point, I was tempted to start naming names and pointing fingers. Not anybody here, okay? My my, my first target tends to be those who are uh, much more visible, say, on television, I'm sorry. No, I'm not sorry. I'll say it just flat out. Much of what is preached on television is not consistent with God's word in one way or another. And you won't necessarily know that unless you're looking for it and trying to find it. Okay? You just got to watch it. There's some good stuff out there. There's some really, really terrible stuff out there. And you have to be careful, okay? All right. So then Paul commends the Christians in Rome for their obedience and the fact that their reputation for obedience has spread to all the churches. That's a good reputation to have. Hey, those Christians in Rome, they're obedient. They love Jesus. They do what he wants. That's good. The Roman Christians are doing well in that regard, and Paul rejoices in that, but he also doesn't want them to stagnate or to move backwards. Obedience is not a one-time act. It is an ongoing process. So how do we continue in obedience? 
Well, Paul has already told them of the importance of maintaining sound doctrine. And now he adds another dimension to that. He tells the Roman Christians that he wants them to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Now, to be wise in what is good means to know what is good and to properly apply that knowledge to how we live. I call it being intentional. We learn, that we learn what is right and good. We understand how and why doing these things benefits us, and we intentionally pursue those right and good things with the goal in mind of serving Christ the best we can. At the same time, we need to be complete strangers to evil. That means we need to know what evil is, but we have absolutely nothing to do with it. A story is told of a man who was interviewing three people interested in the job of driving him on some narrow, dangerous mountain roads. One by one, he asked each of them, how close can you get to the edge without going over? Well, the first man held his hands about a foot apart, and he said, about this close. When the second candidate was asked, he held his fingers about six inches apart, and he said, I can get this close to the edge, thinking that he would get the job since he was closer, you know. The third man responded, sir, I don't know how close I can get to the edge. I stay as close to the mountain as I can. Now, which one of these men would you hire to drive you up the mountain? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Right? Too many Christians want to live their lives seeing how close to the edge they can come without going over. Ooh, I'm, I'm at the edge, but I'm still okay. Ooh, look how close I am now. I'm right there. Really? One slip. Shouldn't we be seeing how far away from the edge we can stay instead? I think that's what Paul means here when he says, I want you to be innocent of evil. Have nothing to do with it. Avoid it as much as you possibly can. So if we maintain sound doctrine, pursue wisdom in knowing and applying what is good, and stay as far as evil as we can, then God promises, vict promises us victory over Satan. And Paul tells the Roman Christians that this will happen soon. Well, now, that raises questions. What does that mean? What's he talking about? Is, is this something more than the victory we already have in Jesus for our salvation and in having eternal life? Is it something more than the victory that Jesus will have as that final victory when he comes back and, and death is conquered and Satan is vanquished and banished to hell and, and all of us get to go back with Jesus that are, that are in Christ at that time? Yeah, I think it's more. I think this is the victory that Paul promised in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, where he wrote, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Why? When we have this wonderful promise, and that's a promise to Christians, God's not going to be able to let you. God's not going to let you be tempted beyond what you're able to withstand. He's faithful with the temptation. He also provides the way of escape, so that you can stand up to the to the temptation. Why, when we have this wonderful promise, do we still find ourselves giving in to temptation? Is it because we're not following one of the three directives Paul has given here? Maintaining sound doctrine, 
is part of the way of escape from temptation because we are established in the truth. You're not deceived by what's being presented to you. You're not fooled. You say, oh, I, I see right through that. That's a temptation. I don't have to give in to that because I know God's word. Learning and applying correctly the things that God says are good is a part of the way of escape from temptation because that which is good is not sin. When you're pursuing, actively, intentionally pursuing what is good, you're going the other way from temptation. You're not going to give in to it. And staying as far from evil as we can is a part of the way of escape of escape from temptation because we're already committed to having nothing to do with sin. We see that coming, we say, I gotta go the other direction. That's not part of who I am. I don't do that. These promises are for Christians, those who have the Holy Spirit living in them, those who have the power of God working through them. And it is God's power by which we will crush Satan under our feet. But we have to accept and cooperate with his power through maintaining sound doctrine, applying ourselves in obedience to what is good, and absolutely avoiding evil. Let's go on to verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. And Quartus, the brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And you might notice uh, some of your translations, verse 24 is in brackets, or it might not be there at all. Uh, they tell us that the oldest manuscripts do not actually have verse 24. Uh, we had that uh, sentiment expressed earlier about the grace of our Lord Jesus being with you. So it's possible verse 24 uh, was a later addition. Anyway, Paul gives another round of greetings to the Corinthians, or to, excuse me, to the Christians. He's in Corinth. To the Christians in Rome, this time from people who are with him in Corinth. Now, Timothy is well known to us today as one of Paul's protégés who traveled with Paul and who eventually became a leader in the church in Ephesus. Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater evidently are Jews. Again, Paul refers to them as his kinsmen. Jews who had become Christians and who were serving in Corinth while Paul was there. Now, in several of Paul's letters, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Colossians, 2 Thessalonians, and here, in Romans, we find evidence that Paul did not actually write the letters himself. I mean, you know, take whatever writing instrument he had and put it to whatever he was writing on. He didn't do that himself. As we see here in verse 22, Paul probably dictated his letters and someone else did the actual writing. Tertius is the only one of these scribes named, and Paul may have suggested that he identify himself to the Roman Christians and greet them at the same time. We don't know, but he interjects that greeting there I, Tertius, who write this letter. He wasn't the author in the sense of coming up with the words. He just put it down with the writing instrument. And then uh, of these other three that we have here, Gaius, Erastus, Cortus, it is probable that Gaius is the one mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians as one of the few that Paul himself baptized in Corinth. Erastus is identified here as the city treasurer. Now, little archaeological history here. In 1929, this inscription was found 
as the ancient city of Corinth was being excavated. And uh, it's a little obscure. If you look way over on the left side there, you can just see the remains of the E, okay? Uh, It's kind of covered up by that other stone there. But the rest of it's pretty clear with the V shape uh, representing the U. The rest of it you can practically read, okay? The inscription here says that a man named Erastus, and they date this back to about about 50 A.D., Uh, The the inscription here says that a man named Erastus received the position of commissioner of public works in exchange for having the pavement laid at his own expense. And we can't know for certain. It is possible that this is the same Erastus Paul mentions in Romans 16.23 and that he held two different public offices at different times. Paul calls him the treasurer. The pavement here describes this Erastus as the director of public works or commissioner of public works. Either way. Okay, just an interesting archaeological uh, footnote there. Of Cortus, we know nothing at all. That Paul mentions him here probably indicates that he was a faithful helper either to Paul or to the church in Corinth or both. Another possibility is that he was known to the people in Rome, and so Paul says, Cortus, the brother, sends his greetings, and they all go, oh, yeah, Cortus, we know him, whatever. Okay, move on to verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, Be the glory forever. Amen. These last three verses are an expression of praise and giving glory to God, and we call something like that a doxology, where doxa is a Greek word for uh, glory. Paul gives a number of things for which he praises and glorifies God, and we see some of these things Uh, echoed back from chapter 1 in Romans. There's there's kind of a book-ending thing going on here and and a couple, uh, maybe a reference to another uh, place in Romans that Paul talks about. But there's at least uh, two or three things here that come from chapter 1. Paul starts with the fact that God is able to establish Christians according to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul had stated this as one of his desires for the Roman Christians back in Romans chapter 1, verse 11, that they would be established by the gospel. How are Christians established by the gospel? Well, chapter 1, verse 16, Paul said that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, both Jews and Gentiles. Christians are established in their saving relationship with God through their acceptance of the truth about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we can praise God for that indeed. Established in the relationship, the saving relationship that we have with God when we accept that truth about Jesus Christ. The next thing for which Paul gives praise and glory to God is that the the mystery has been revealed. He's talked about the mystery before, uh, back in uh, chapter 11. 
This mystery is more than the opportunity just for salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. As if that weren't enough. The mystery, if we go back to chapter 11, verse 25, Paul describes the mystery there as the fact that not only is salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ available, but that both Jews and Gentiles can receive salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Something that had been revealed in the Old Testament scriptures, but hadn't been understood well until after the church had begun. Even as this mystery was made known to all nations by God's command through the Old Testament writings, the result of the mystery being made known, and here's where we have our third thing, our third uh, reference to chapter 1. The result of this mystery being made known is what Paul calls the obedience of faith. Paul used that expression back in Romans 1.5, where he said that the fulfillment of his apostleship was the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. In 1626, Paul glorifies God for the obedience of faith for all who accept the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. Salvation is the beginning of the relationship that we have with God through faith in Jesus Christ. But we continue in that relationship by being obedient in his commands, not earning salvation, but showing the transformation that God brings about in our lives, showing the full submission that we have to him and to his will. Through Jesus Christ, I am behind there. Through Jesus Christ, God has provided salvation, justification, and sanctification for us, none of which we could ever have obtained on our own. You and I deserve none of the credit and none of the glory. In Romans chapter 5, verse 6, Paul described us as being helpless to do anything about our sin problem. But God provided the solution by sending Jesus to die on our behalf, taking the penalty of our sin on himself. And so Paul says, all glory to God. And I think we should say, all glory to God for what he had the wisdom and ability to provide for us by his grace on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. Now this last chapter of Romans has been largely personal for Paul as he sends greetings to and from his fellow Christians. As Paul gives name after name of those who worked effectively in the early church, it makes me wonder, are you inspired to be named among those names such that the Apostle Paul, in writing this letter, singled these people out and said, by name, Greet these people for what they've done and think about their hard work. Think about their faithfulness. Think about their sacrifice. Are you inspired to be named among them? Does following Jesus consume you as it did these early Christians? Are you prepared to identify and avoid those who teach false and divisive doctrine? Are you intentionally pursuing that which is right and good according to God, and being careful to have absolutely nothing to do with anything that is evil. And don't be confused. Just because you call it something else doesn't make it less evil. You can rebrand it. You can rename it. You can pretend it's something else. But if it's evil, it's evil. Call it what it is. Identify it for what it is and avoid it. 
And are you experiencing daily victory over Satan and temptation because you apply yourself to these three things? If you're a Christian, are you giving glory to God through the obedience to him that your faith produces? Is that, does that characterize you as a Christian? Obedience to Christ? You are so submitted to Christ and so sold out to him. Whatever he says, that's what you're going to do. It doesn't matter. Are, are you characterized that way in your Christian walk? Do others have cause to give glory to God for what they see him doing in your life? If you're not yet a Christian, are you aware of your sin and the problem that it creates for you. This book has laid it out for us. You may not have been here for the whole thing, or you may not have, may not remember everything. You have to go back and reread it or whatever. But are you aware of your sin and the problem that it creates for you? Your sin separates you from God. If you don't accept God's solution for your sin problem, you'll be separated from him for eternity. The only way to have the problem of your sin taken away is to receive salvation by God's grace through believing in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. God tells those who believe in Jesus like that, that believe in him as Savior and Lord, God tells those who believe in Jesus like that to turn away from their life of sin. That's another way of saying repent. He tells them to confess their faith in Christ to others, and those others serve as witnesses to their faith. Like Paul told Timothy, he says, you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And he tells them to be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, receiving the gift of his Holy Spirit, which is his presence in you, identifies you as belonging to Jesus. He tells them, or excuse me, instead of them, I'm talking about them and they. Instead of them and they, are you ready to apply these things to you if you're ready to receive salvation, forgiveness of sin, and eternal life in Jesus Christ? Please come forward as we sing our invitation song.